Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Midpoint, the podcast which asks how did we get to the halfway stage so soon and what are we going to do with the next half of our lives? The wonderful people who've let me ask those questions have enlightened me so far with a range of life philosophies and ways of looking at the ageing process. And today's guest is no different, a perennial achiever with four Olympic gold medals and two world records. I think you know the meaning of a hard graft and he certainly does. I've had the good fortune to work with Michael Johnson for the best part of a decade and I can tell you he was the last man I would have suspected at being at risk of a stroke. But that's what happened to him two years ago at the age of 50. And it was only his quick thinking and insistence that he went straight to hospital rather than having a nap saved his life. He talks about how stress probably led to the stroke and how he's changed because of it. I always love chatting to him about American politics when we work together. And as you can imagine, after the summer we've just had with racism still rightly the number one political topic in the US, we discussed whether or not this current wave of awareness will lead to real systemic change. And we also had 10 minutes of wisdom from the nutritionist Ian Marber on diet, allergies and forward planning. This episode is brought to you thanks to our very healthy friends at Solgar. Now, Solgar might not spring straight to mind, but with 70 years of experience in vitamins and supplements, they're quite literally the gold standard when it comes to keeping your body topped up with those vital minerals and vitamins. I like to think my diet's pretty healthy, but I know occasionally I do need to top it up and boost it here and there throughout the year. Personally, I love their rigorous attention to detail, from ingredient sourcing and formulation through to manufacture. They've crafted a diverse range of over 300 different evidence-backed formulas, which allows us all to personalise our nutritional support plan and optimise our health and performance. I'm pretty sure you'll recognise them. They've got gold lids and brown glass bottles. Very chic. They're also available online through Solgar, which is solgar.co.uk. Michael Johnson, it is so lovely to see you in the flesh. And I know you're, you know, you're in California somewhere, but I feel so much closer to you now seeing you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good, Gabby. Good to see you as well. Uh, it's been a while. We should be, uh, should we just be now just uh, like tired of seeing each other for every day for about three weeks? <laughs> should be just now going, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm good. I've had my bill. Gabby, <laughs> And I feel like Michael. Yeah, I think this is, the, this is about the point of the year where you kind of go and decompress somewhere after we've just worked you to the bone every day at Olympic Games. You usually head off somewhere like Tuscany, don't you? And just drink nice wine and chill out. Yeah, but we're not allowed to go there now as Americans. Yeah, uh, I saw, I saw your we, social media the other day. Yeah, we, we've, uh, we, Trump did build a wall. He just built it around us so we can't get out. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get on to Trump, actually, in politics very shortly, um, because there's so much to talk about. And um, and I kind of mentioned in your introduction that I have some really interesting, enlightening conversations with you over the years about American politics. Um, 
Behind you, obviously this is an audio podcast, behind you on the wall are um, some very interesting mementos of an incredible career. I'm recognising some broadcasting awards and I'm seeing a golden Nike boot. Um, what, what have we got there behind you, Michael? Yeah, I got uh, a couple of uh, RT, uh, RTS, a couple of uh, Royal Television Society uh, uh, Planet of the Year awards, a um, couple of... Uh, IWF uh, Athlete of the Year awards, uh, yeah, some kind of shoe, just a sneaker, gold <laughs> sneaker back there. Was that was that a sneaker that you ran a world record in? Maybe that's been gold plated, or uh, yeah, I did some did some pretty. Uh, I, I impressed myself in that shoe actually. <laughs> <laughs> was that the '96 Olympic shoe? That's a '96 Olympic shoe. Yeah. Oh wow, yeah. that's uh, you know it's kind of minimalist that shelf, but I I love it even more for that because it's. It's very understated, but full of absolute like gems. There's nothing wasted, is there, on that shelf? That was that was what my coach was telling me every day, Michael. No wasted motion, none of that. Just you know, efficiency is king. And so I guess I just carried that through. You know, that was a hallmark of my my athletics career: efficient. You know, and um, that's what made me quick. So I guess yeah, it stayed with me throughout my career. <laughs> Into your interior. Well, it's what also I, I you know when I was thinking about speaking to you today as a broadcaster, while I can rely on you to fill two minutes if I need you to. I also know that you won't waste any words in that two minutes. There is never any kind of building up to make a point. You almost make the point and then can back it up for as long as you need to make it, you know, that point, which is um, an art. And obviously that's why you have those awards. But when you came to kind of change careers or morphed into a sports broadcaster from being a top class athlete, was it completely natural? It wasn't, I, I think there was some, obviously I started off, uh, Gabby, with, with athletics and, and, and as a pundit in athletics and uh, for, for NBC here in, in the U.S. And I actually started, uh, the first time I, I did any of this sort of work, it was I was still competing as an athlete. So um, obviously I had the, the base of, of knowledge of the, of the, the, the sport, um, which I could rely on, but I quickly learned um, that that would not be enough um uh, to to really succeed in a career as a as a as a broadcaster as an athletics pundit or television pundit and um um i you know started i, I basically just took the same approach uh, as i did with my athletic career I, I felt like i had the i had some natural ability um but yeah you know just like athletics that only will take you so far and you, you ultimately want to realize your, your potential and and that takes a tremendous amount of work and understanding of, you know, what weaknesses you have and, and how you need to shore up those weaknesses and, and understanding of self and, and how you uh, how you get the best from yourself. And so that was that was something that um, I learned as an athlete and, and I was able to carry on over into my post-athletic career as a television pundit. Which is just one string to your many bows because you didn't stop kind of athletics and then say, okay, I'm just going to talk about it now. You, you have all kinds of business interests, uh, not least the Michael Johnson Performance Centres, which are all over the world. This, this podcast kind of came to life because about a year ago, I was thinking, okay, I'm 47 now, I'm 46 then. Um, it feels like the midway, you know, it feels like halfway. I've got a few centurions in the family. So I'm hoping I'm going to get into the 90s. Um, but but that's also, that's a long time, you know, to, 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 to still be living and really living, not just existing, you know, and wanting to keep pursuing goals and keep, 
changing things in your life and growing. When you finished one phenomenal career where you're an Olympic champion, you're a world record holder, it, it would have been quite easy to just go, I've done my thing. I've done I've done what I was here to do. I'm going to enjoy my wine. I'm going to drive my car fast. I'm going to live by the beach. So what, what was it that stopped you stopping? <laughs> um, well, you've been listening over the years. Gabby. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I do all of those things and I enjoy all of those things, but I also equally enjoy working. I, I enjoy um, building things, building businesses. Business has always intrigued me uh, since I was a kid. And as you know, when I went to university, I didn't think that I was going to actually go on to become a uh, a, a professional athlete. I thought I would, I would, yeah, pursue a, a career in business and, and entrepreneurship. And uh, so, obviously, I got very lucky, and you know, I had a, a long athletics career that, that you know was the highlight. But I always knew um, when I when I you know started my athletic career, and I was fortunate enough to have a professional athletic career, that I would you know I wouldn't be able to do this forever. You know, as an uh, as a professional athlete, you know that um, that's going. You're going to be still very young, relatively speaking, um, when your athletic career ends. So I was always thinking about that. What am I going to do next, and what's the rest of my my life going to look like? And uh, and it was just a natural for me that the main thing would be to go pursue that um, uh, that entrepreneurship, you know, career and 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 building businesses, and, um, and and I've enjoyed that. I still enjoy it. So, and I enjoy it, Gabby, equally to yeah, drinking my wine and you know, getting on the track with my car and you know, and, and all of those things, and hanging out at the beach and traveling the world with my wife. You know, I enjoy all of those things equally. But in terms of highs, and because I I once listened in on a conversation actually between my husband Kenny, who you've met, who's, who was a rugby player, and a friend of his who played for England, and a very very successful businessman in this country who started Carphone Warehouse and is worth a billion pounds, and he was trying to say that closing a deal is exhilarating, as exhilarating as going onto the field at Murrayfield or at Twickenham to play rugby, and the two boys, the two guys, were just saying, no, we're both in business now. We'll tell you straight, it's nowhere near the buzz, the high that you get. Did did you have a worry that you'd achieved, you know, kind of the thing that's going to make you kind of most proud and that everything else was going to be a little bit less exciting? Or have you found business to give you those highs? No. So I, I have always felt that there probably won't be anything that I will do in my business career or television career or anything else that will ever equal the the, the joy, the, the, the exhilaration, the, 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 and, and the high of winning an Olympic gold medal. Um, because, you know, I dreamed of that as a kid and, you know, and it's the ultimate. So it's interesting, the, the mindset to move from world champion, Olympic champion, world record holder. Actually, you can see how some people it's so mentally challenging that it, it causes them mental anguish, doesn't it? To, to make that transition from sports person into a new life. Well, I mean, it, it obviously has proven to be, be very, very difficult uh, to make that transition because we've seen so many athletes struggle with it. Um, I, I did not, um, but, but I think that, you know, in, in working with different athletes um, and, and knowing so many athletes and seeing their, their struggles, I, I, I think it, 
it comes down to mostly, um, you know, it's very easy as a professional athlete to sort of take all of the exterior, you know, sort of perception of you as an athlete and how people perceive you. And that, you know, sort of, you know, permeates your own understanding of yourself. And you start to believe as well that, well, I'm an Olympic sprinter. I'm the fastest man in the world. That's who I am. So who are you, Michael Johnson? Fastest man in the world. Well, if that is who I am and that's who I believe I am, when I'm no longer the fastest man in the world, then what do I have? And I think I was just very fortunate to, you know, to you know, have a family who sort of kept me grounded in that way. They never saw me that way. They always just saw me as Michael. I'm the youngest of five. So that comes with its own set of, <laughs> um, you know, of, uh, and sort of natural balance and grounding. Um, and, um, but also, um, as I said to you, you know, I never thought, I never, I never thought that I would be in that position. I always thought that I would, again, go on to university and graduate and go into business and, sort of normal people's lives you know yeah, um, yeah. and um and so so i always you know as i said you know i was always thinking about what will i do when this is over and i never saw myself as you know only the fastest man in the world only as olympic sprinter i knew you know that there are other things i had other interests and and i think that that was helpful so that when i was no longer an olympic champion and no longer uh, wait, i was olympic champion but no longer in my career um you know, I, I was comfortable with that. It's about being prepared, isn't it? In the same way you prepare as an athlete, being ready for that transition. And then when you had your stroke, which if people don't know, um, was... Two years ago, August 30th. It came completely out of the blue, obviously, as these things do, but also more shocking because you were in such pristine physical kind of condition. I think that's people's perceptions of, of people who get strokes wrongly probably was not you as a physical specimen i know i've spoken to you a lot about you know how you got yourself back and the, and the rehabbing to get where you are now but i wonder mentally has it changed you and your your attitudes to life to what you do to your body it's changed me um in in one way and it's not you know sort of the typical thing is is you know and everyone says this you know, to me about you know, having had a stroke and overcome that and Oh, do you, yeah, do, you, do you appreciate things a lot more now? And, you know, I, I actually appreciated you know, what I had and, and, and how fortunate I've been before the stroke. And I think that it was that appreciation of how fortunate I've been. I mean, I was 51 years old when I had my stroke. And, um, um, you know, it was, um, you know, I, my perspective shortly after I, you know, while I'm in the hospital and not knowing if I'm going to be able to walk again, my, my perspective obviously was fear and, and concern and, you know, as to whether I'm going to ever be able to get back to my previous uh, life and livelihood and, and, and all of that. But also, you know, after, shortly after that, I, I thought about, you know, I'm 53 years old and this is the, the first time in my life that I've had anything of this magnitude. I have been so fortunate to have never had any major issues in my life, no health scares, no, you know, tragedies, nothing. This is it. And, um, you know, so I've been very fortunate to that point. And so it was because of that, I believe, and that I was able to get through that situation. Um, and um, so, 
So, but so the, the one thing that has changed, so, so I don't appreciate life any more than I did before. I've always appreciated everything. Um, but um, stress, you know, I, it, I, it, I realized when I was, you know, after the stroke that I, I do well with stress. If we're sitting in a meeting in, the, in, in, in our uh, conference room at my, at my company's headquarters and, you know, we're a team and we're sitting around the table and something needs to be done, I'm the first one raising my hand saying, I'll take that. Well, now I sit on my hands and just kind of look around and go, Some, who else? Who's going to take that? You know, <laughs> because I know that I, I do well under stress. Mm, all of my too well. records. Too well. All of my, yeah, <laughs> you know, all, all of my records have come when it's, you know, Pressure's on, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I do well, but, you know, as much as, so I've conditioned myself mentally to be able to do well with stress. And, and, um, so pr- prior to the stroke, you know, when I'm doing my annual medical checkup and things like that, you know, there's the questionnaire is, do you experience stress in your life? I always said no, <laughs> because I like it. Because you, yeah, because you dealt with it so well that actually perversely you enjoyed those situations that other people, may have manifested all kinds of physical ailments if they'd had to deal with it. Well, and that's the thing. You know, a lot of it is 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 more, I think people um, experience a lot more sort of mental st- uh, um, uh, issues as a result of the stress. But I don't. But that's not to say that my body wasn't taking it on in a very difficult way and, 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 and having to, you know, deal with all of the stress that I'm putting on it. And that probably contributed to me having having a stroke. A lot of people find at the age of, you know, kind of late 40s, early 50s, metabolism slows down, you know, they feel different foods affect them in a different way. So I thought Ian Marble would be a perfect person to bring in. We're going to talk about nutrition, Ian. And as you can see, and you've probably seen Michael many times before, he's a very healthy specimen. And I did say to him that this is not kind of, this is teaching your granny to suck eggs probably, talking nutrition to Michael Johnson. I've seen him eat, Ian, and he eats very well and he's very disciplined. You you kind of have to really, wouldn't you? I used to have to. I don't (laughs) have to anymore. Now it's not. I bet you still do that, don't you? It's it's balanced, Ian, and and, and great to meet you, by the way. it, it's it's balanced, and, and you know, and, and so when I was an athlete, uh, and I've been t- retired for twenty years now, and um, when I was an athlete, though during my career, my my, my diet was balanced then, uh, which I think helped to to you know uh, make it more sustainable, um, you know, and made it easier for me to to do the things I needed to do and stay away from most of the things that I needed to stay away from, as long as I could you know, partake of those, you know, from time to time, you know, that made it easier and more sustainable. And, and, and so that, that made the transition for me much easier as well. The fact that you effectively you had like a nutrition training, that you, that because you had good nutrition through those important years, that your health and your nutrition is likely to be better as you get older. And I think that's an important part for a lot of men is that um, men more than women, that we tend to, regular guys don't tend to make changes in their nutrition until something happens. Um, you know, for women have had dark, diet culture rammed down their throats for many years. So as a result, the, the downside of that is obvious. The upside is a better awareness of nutrition. A lot of men, younger men now are much more interested because of Instagram. You know, they're much more interested in, in being bigger. And for a lot of men, that just means, you know, protein. Um, but I, 
the tail end of that is men are becoming more interested in nutrition. People of my age, I think I'm a little older than you, I'm 57 at the end of the year, tend to be make changes only when something happens, or when they have high cholesterol, um, or, or when someone tells them they have to make changes. Prior to that, we tend to kind of go along and do what we want. And so what we're trying to do then is, is not have to make that dramatic change. Hormones change, and it affects our bodies in many, many different ways. Um, should we be aware of adapting our diet to reflect those changing hormones, the drop-off in men of testosterone, the drop-off in women of progesterone? Um, I think just... just testosterone is a very interesting one because of course testosterone is going to be linked to some degree to muscle mass and that's an important part of metabolism as well now we get something called sarcopenia which I'm, you might sure you've heard of which is the reduction in muscle mass as we age so um uh, uh, if you were to, to look online if you were to google how to have better testosterone through nutrition muscle mass is rarely talked about it tends to be more three nutrients which is zinc vitamin d and magnesium now Vitamin D tends to, the, the outcome of taking vitamin D on testosterone is inconsistent. Um, zinc, you have to take an awful lot, probably dangerous levels to actually maintain your testosterone levels. So I wouldn't recommend that. Um, magnesium, we certainly have a drop off as we get older. And that's partly linked because we have uh, more stress. We have more cortisol. And cortisol is a stress hormone. And when cortisol levels are high, this often stops the conversion of another hormone, DHEA, into testosterone. So rather than thinking, how do I maintain my testosterone directly, we have to think indirectly and talk about stress, which comes back to important things like sleep. Uh, it comes back to not having too much alcohol so you have a better quality of sleep. It comes down to having better muscle mass so you have more exercise, which in, in turn will improve your sleep quality. So... From a men's perspective, we have to think of it as consistent exercise, making sure we have uh, enough protein in the diet so that we have, uh, uh, so we do weightlifting and also so that that protein actually gets converted and used as muscle mass. But also for women, it's very different. It's very different indeed. And I, I, it's not my expertise effectively. And but women, I think that, women are encouraged also to lift weights, aren't they, as they yes, get older? Yes, abso absolutely, yes. And I think that um, but there's, there is a, a dichotomy there because... I've been doing this for 21 years and I have a lot of more female than, than male clients and there still seems to be this idea that um, you have to be thin. Um, and although it's, it's certainly in the last five years, there's more of a conversation about being healthy and fit, um, but a lot of women who train, especially weightlifting, one of their first responses, I don't want to get big. Which Michael, so, I mean, you will know, and I see it all the time. When I see somebody like Dina Asher-Smith, her Instagram, the kind of weights that she does, any of those sprinters, and you stand next to them, Patrick, they're so lean and they are so far away from being, you know, perceived, you know, what you would call big. They, they, they totally would, would, you know, fly in the face of any idea that weights make you big. They can make you big, but they don't have to, Michael, right? Yeah, and I think I, I think that that's a long-held myth in the fitness world and training world that, you know, and, and it's quite shocking, actually, that it still persists that, you know, if you lift weights, you're going to be big. And the only way to, 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 to strength train is through, you know, to build big, huge muscles. And, and you know, you can, you can strength train for, for, uh, for for muscle growth, but you can also strength train for strength and and um, and, and to tone. And so you know, it's it's shocking. That it is. That it's a shame because for women to not do it for that reason, because it's so empowering as well. And it and, and I imagine as that you know, I 
the way I feel, the kind of hormonal release that you get from that kind of training is so positive as well, isn't it? So um, away from, because training is, you know, not not your particular area of expertise, Ian. Um, so we want to stick to kind of nutritional and diet stuff, obviously, that you are um, entrenched in. One of the other areas which seem to kind of increase with age um, is allergies. I just seem to notice people, you know, everybody's allergic to something. Yeah. Is this, in my perception, is are people jumping on bandwagons or are we genuinely becoming more allergic? Um, it, it's a complex area and we have to understand that the allergies often become conflated with food intolerances and also preferences as well. Uh, we've all been out to eat with friends who say that I'm, uh, you know, who don't like something, but this, this is over years has morphed into I'm allergic. Now, it could be that in telling someone who's taking your order that I don't like something, doesn't have weight to it. So we say I'm allergic because then they pay more attention. Um, there is an increase in food intolerances and I think that's possibly because we're more aware. I think we're more self-aware and I think we, we are, are more aware of changes in our body. But um, food allergies and food intolerances involve different immune cells. And a food intolerance, the, the, the popular idea, which is, is sometimes a bit of a myth, is an idea that uh, IgGs, as they're called, immunoglobulins G, a certain type of immune cells that respond, that is supposedly involved with uh, food intolerances, um, that they take a long time to build up. So therefore, the responses we have are fatigue, lethargy, headaches, general things that may kick in in 24 to 48 hours. Well, who doesn't get tired? Who doesn't get an occasional headache? And it's, it's very useful to have the peg of what I had for dinner on Monday night uh, as being the reason. Now, um, another problem with this before is that IgGs can be tested for through a blood test, but the blood test is flawed. Uh, and more importantly, it more often than not just simply shows you what you've been exposed to. So if you have uh, Greek yogurts, pistachio nuts, and blackberries for breakfast every day, and then we draw blood, you know, Monday to Friday, you have, we draw blood on a Friday, you will probably have raised IgGs. Many years ago, for one of the glossy magazines, um, I did a food intolerance test, an IgG, um, for, uh, through one lab. And then uh, for the next five days, I had, after that, I then did, I had the same breakfast, lunch, and dinner, things I don't normally have. I went to one specific restaurant and had their whatever I had, I can't remember. And then on the sixth day, we drew blood and I did an IgG test with a completely different lab. And only the foods I'd eaten for those five days came up. Now, that doesn't mean that people don't have food intolerances, but they are mostly to be discovered through uh, a, a boring, laborious way of cutting out foods and seeing how you feel, keeping a, a score on what your day-to-day -day symptoms are. The blood tests are too expensive and give flawed results. Um, just finally, Ian, and thank you so much for all of that, because I think it's really important that people are bombarded with conflicting messages as well in the popular press, aren't they, about superfoods and foods they should eat and shouldn't eat. Um, Superfood, by the way, is any food with a marketing department. Yeah. <laughs> Goji berries for a while. They had they were, they were had a great marketing department, didn't they? And blueberries, they had their moment as well. It was amazing. And um, avocados, as we know. But you, um, you, I'm sure, have loads and loads of tips. Somebody listening to this, of Michael's age, let's say, 52 years old, in good health, been through a bit of a, a health scare, but always his whole life has been a very healthy man. What tip, what nutritional tip would you say to them would be the one, number one gold star going forwards? Okay. Um, in the same way that we have a pension, we plan for our financial future, plan for your health future effectively. And nutrition is a cornerstone of that. Um, you know, it, it's never too late and, um, you know, start now. 
So any, any pension advisor will tell you the same thing. And I say the same thing for your, your health and nutrition pension. Ian, thank you so much. Really lovely to speak to thank you. Thank you for having me on. Michael, good to talk to you. Thank you. Take care. I want to completely change gear, if I, if I might, um, because ironically, this of all summers would be the one that I'm sure we'd have some very interesting conversations in cars and on the way to work about what has happened this summer in terms of, well, starting with George Floyd and the, and obviously the Black Lives Matter movement, which, as you know, and I've heard you talking in this country on the radio um also became a huge, huge, and I say became as if it's finished and gone away. And that's one of the things I want to ask you about, how impactful it's been in America, how much the conversation is still going on, if changes, real changes are happening, because the noise at the start seemed to be, this is different, you know? And I heard you saying that on Five Live, that you felt this was different. Do you still feel what's happened this summer is gonna have a legacy? I, I hope so, Gabby. Um, you know, uh, uh, I have never seen this type of momentum around the issue, the issues that we're talking about, the inequality, the, you know, it's, it's much more than, than honestly, George Floyd. Uh, he was the, the, the impetus for this. But, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that was, was, that made this different, and there are a few things I think that made this different, but one of the things was, you know, we have had a lot of situations in this country in the lead up to the George Floyd murder um, that have included, you know, white people and particularly, for some reason, white women, you know, um, calling the police um, to complain about a black person just sort of living their life. You, you know, there is a sort of popular saying here in this country right now, you know, you know, being murdered while, you know, doing this, black person being you know, beaten while doing this. And, you know, and just fill in the blank with anything, you know. There's, a, are, are, are the police being called while doing blank? You know, there was a young girl selling lemonade, a lemonade stands, a young black girl, a white woman called the police. She shouldn't be selling lemonade here on the sidewalk in my neighborhood. Well, it was her neighborhood too. So the week of the George Floyd murder, there also was a very prominent case in the news with the woman in Central Park, a white woman who called the police on uh, the black guy who was a bird watcher. And, you know, and she used and weaponized her status as a white woman because she was not unpleased with how, you know, their conversation was going about her having her dog in an area that was restricted for dogs. So she, you know, was caught on video basically saying, I'm going to use my status as a white woman against you as a black man because I know that I will be believed, and you are probably going to get in trouble. You may be jailed. You may be beat. Um, so I think that the culmination of all of those things, there was also a, a, a Maude Arbery story, which was a couple of months before the George Floyd story. Um, and that was, um, you know, this young black man was just jogging down the street going for a run into uh, white men in his neighborhood, um, had heard of someone stealing things, and they decided to pursue him, and they ultimately killed him and he hadn't been stealing anything. So all of those things have conspired to make black people just really, really sick and tired of this. I believe that the, the woman in Central Park, I believe that that was more impactful, obviously, actually, than the George Floyd murder. Obviously, his life was taken, and that is, that's a shame, and, and then people were outraged to see that video of, 
the police officer with his knee on George Floyd's neck. But as much as that happens, which is a shame, you know, what happens every single day to black people in this country and, and, and around the, the, the world, um, you know, is those sorts of situations like what we saw with the woman in Central Park, using that status and knowing that we have an unequal society here. I am treated better. I am treated superior to mm -hmm. you. People will believe and, me because of my color, my skin. Right. And, but, but, you know, for whatever reason, you know, they live their lives that way and we live our lives this way as well. And it's, and, and, and it's been that, that white people are superior and black people are in, in, inferior and, um, and people are tired of it and they deal with it every single day. And I think that all of that, along with the fact that we all have been forced to sort of stay at home and pay attention because of COVID has made this moment different. So it has been much more impactful thus far but it will certainly need to be sustained. And there are lots of efforts going on to sustain it. And I'm hopeful that it, we will see significant change and it won't just be a moment. Yeah, it struck me then that there's, there's so many kind of tiers to this, isn't there, or layers to this, because you know, you've got the, the police brutality and that that is not a new thing. You know, there are so many other incidences of that. The, the lady in Central Park, which is this overuse of her own privilege, to, to condemn somebody, you know, and using her her sex and her and her color of her skin, you know, kind of to to kind of make that person a villain, and then there's the institutional stuff, which is kind of so embedded into um, all kinds of layers of, of life in terms of who runs companies, who runs the country, who um, you know who who makes big decisions and how they and how you get to make those big decisions and lots of that's tied up in poverty as well isn't it in terms of you know your, your chances in life if you come from a very poor background are so much so much harder to achieve and obviously add to that the color of your skin and you're you know really fighting against it so there's there's so many kind of ways to or, or if you stand back and go right where do, where's the best place to start this fight or where, how do you increase the momentum on this fight for you what would you say is the most important area is it the police is it is it business is it politics where you know where would you go to first so all of those things that you just mentioned gabby you're exactly right but they all go back to one thing and that is the systemic and institutionalized racism that we've been dealing with that is embedded in this country because if you go, you have to go back. And, you know, we didn't, uh, African-Americans didn't immigrate here. We didn't come here by choice. So for hundreds of years, we were enslaved. Black people were enslaved. And, you know, when slavery was abolished, everything didn't, African-Americans still weren't equal. And as, you know, you, you, we went through the Jim Crow period, we went through the civil rights movement, but in each one of those stops, it wasn't as in each one of those significant periods in history, as much work as was done and the progress that was made, there was still never really and still hasn't been a real acknowledgement of how difficult it must be for African-Americans, even 400 years later, to actually pull themselves up and be equal, truly equal, to white people in this country. You don't learn about 
that history as a white person, you don't learn, or as a black person, you don't learn about that history in school. You don't learn about how we got here. So when you talk about white privilege, you know, lots of people don't even realize that they're privileged because their polls will suggest and, and, and prove that, you know, many white people feel like that. We're all equal. We all have the same, you know, access. We all have, and it's not true. It, it, the systems, the institutions in this country are, are designed. That's one of the conversations that I've been pleased to hear has been kind of pushed to the front in this country. That's definitely, and maybe it's because I choose to listen to those conversations, but people realizing, and there's all, there is almost like an embarrassment about it. Do you know what I mean? Because you people go, I'm not racist, but then they realize they have to be more than that. They have to be anti-racist. And then they realize that involves changes to the system. And then it's a kind of, I don't really know how to do that. Does that mean that I'm, you know, somehow then going to, you know, am I going to then pull myself back? Am I going to, you know, and then it's a self-preservation thing, isn't it? That people... Well, then... you know, I mean, it is, in all honesty, Gabby, it is a zero-sum game. If you have privilege, it is at the expense of someone who doesn't. And there is just no two ways about that. That is the truth. And, that is, and that's difficult for a lot of people to take. It's also difficult if you believe, if you're very proud of your accomplishments and what you've been able to do and financially and through business or whatever that you've been able to do in your life. And all of a sudden, you have to reckon that now with the idea that, well, it wasn't just 100% me. I had some help. That would be like me today at 52 years old. All of a sudden, my coach tells me, hey, you know what? You know those that nutrition shakes I was giving you throughout your entire career? Well, those were laced with steroids. Oh my, you know, I mean, you know, that would be that. I am taking shakes when I was competing, but that would be devastating for me. I wouldn't want to believe that my gold medals and my world records are all as a result of, 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 of some unfair advantage I had. I, I wouldn't want to believe it, you know, and that's the same thing for anyone who is successful with and, and who has been privileged. They don't want to believe that their success may be partly due to some unfair advantage that they have. They want to believe that I did this all myself because that's what they have believed. So it's a very difficult uh, conversation to have. It's very difficult for people who have privilege to really understand it. But it's even more difficult for those of us African-Americans. And certainly I've been fortunate in my career, but I have a whole family and people in my community and people that I know who haven't been fortunate because the system is set up for them to have to swim upstream every single day when they wake up. And it, I mean, and, and it's, again, it's systemic, it's institutionalized. And, and, and we have, you know, one of the whole things with Black Lives Matters and people, you know, kneeling for the national anthem is out of a sense that we talk about things every day in this country as, in terms of who we are as an American, as, as, as a country. And it's a lie. It's an absolute lie. Everyone isn't equal. The system isn't equal. Black people don't have equal access to education or housing, and it's been set up that way from the very beginning, and it hasn't changed. It's as if I said to you, Gabby, okay, all of a sudden now, as of today, you have to share all of your wealth with these 10 people, okay? But Gabby, you get to set up the rules as to how you have to share it. 
well, you're going to set up the rules in your own favor. That is exactly what has happened in this country. Yes, we had this, slavery was abolished. Civil Rights Act uh, was passed that gave us many different rights. But those systems were set up. And when those things happened, they were set up by white men who were already in control and set it up so that it would always be uh, uh, tilted in their own favor. And that has continued. And there continue to be efforts politically in this country since that time that continue to try to erode the rights, the legal rights of black people and minorities and continue to keep privilege for white people. Oh, there's so much more I want to talk to you about, but just um, very briefly, because I know you're, I know you're kind of like you'll close this down quickly. Whenever I hear you talk like this, and we could talk on and on, you know, it just feels like you're wasted on my sofa. <laughs> it feels like, although I want you to tell me how how come Adam Jamili hasn't won a gold medal in the Olympics, or <laughs> how come Katerina Johnson Thompson, you know, has become a world champion, I also want you to be the leader you are, you know, and kind of be the voice of, of, of people because you speak so, not just, you don't just speak brilliantly, but you have such passion and understanding and you're such a, a fantastic role model. You must have been courted by, I'm imagining the Democrats, <laughs> but you must have been courted by politicians and political parties. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I failed in my effort to help Hillary Clinton a few years ago, but I was called by her and her campaign to help, and, and, and I did. And, and unfortunately, you know, um, because of institutionalized racism in this country, she didn't win because she scored three million more votes. Three million more Americans wanted her to be president than, than wanted Donald Trump to be president. We have what's called the Electoral College, which is a racist policy that favors um, conservatives, and, and so he won. So, so yes, I have, and, and I continue to do what I can. Um, um, you know, at this point, I will do even more, and I have been. And would it, you stand? Would you stand for Congress? No, I, I wouldn't. It's it's not. That's where that's not where my talent lies. It's not where my my my. Uh, it's not the best way for me to help. Um, but uh, you know, it is important that we elect uh, people who understand. Uh, the issues and who are, are going to to do the things that are going to help, um, you know, for us to end this. Are you happy with the Biden-Harris ticket? Yeah. And I think that those are, are examples of people who will. I mean, look, that's an easy one. You know, I mean, Gabby, I mean, it's it's whether I was happy with them or not, it wouldn't matter. They That's an absolute zero sum game. And that's one of the problems we have in this country. You know, we have young people who want that perfect candidate and if they don't get that perfect candidate then they don't vote well you know if you are a democrat for example and you're pushing for equality well a vote a non-vote is a vote for donald trump and, and that is a vote against your own so interest. is that how you'll use your voice in the next few months will you be using your voice to make sure that those people come out and vote and also that the african-american community comes out and votes not only comes out and votes, but then hold people who hold the offices and that we have voted for, hold them accountable. Because, you know, we, we're we all very busy and every four years, you know, there's a huge election and it gets all of the media attention and people focus on that. But, you know, over the last four years, you know, there are also congressmen and senators and local politicians and state politicians and federal judges and state judges who are being appointed and being elected. And if no one's paying attention to those elections, those are the, that's where people actually do the work that implement racist policies that affect how you actually vote for the president. So, 
we have to be out there sounding the drum, and I certainly will. I will be helping to get the word out and, and awareness to people that you have to vote. You have to vote and, and, and value that vote, not only when it comes to the national election, but for midterm elections, but also local elections, but also, very importantly, holding those people and holding those politicians accountable. We will vote your ass out if you don't do the right thing. You have a son who, is he 21? 20, He's 20. 20. He um, is the generation that, you know, are you'd feel very mobilized by what's happened. Do you see that through his eyes? Do you see him and his friends being very politically aware? They are different than us in that they are very aware, which is great, much more aware than, than my generation was at that age. I think the problem we have with them sometimes is that um, they are so used to, because they grew up with technology and they grew up in the world of there's an app for that, for everything. So everything is at your fingertips and everything happens as you want it, how you want it, and as quickly as you want to. Politics don't work that way. So they get sort of uh, disenchanted with the whole process and they sort of get you know frustrated very quickly when they don't have the candidate, for example, that they want or that they, that, that they feel is the perfect candidate. If you are a Bernie Sanders supporter, and many of them were, and he doesn't win the primary, and it's Hillary Clinton, for example, in the last election, well, then they decide, I'm not gonna vote then. I, I deserve the perfect candidate. I was speaking on a college campus for campaigning for Hillary Clinton about four years ago, and that was what I was hearing from a lot of them. Well, I don't like either candidate. Okay, well, you don't have a choice then not to vote. You have, but they feel that they deserve the perfect candidate. Then when they grew up, when my son grew up, Barack Obama was his president. Barack Obama was running for president and he loved Barack Obama. That was a perfect candidate for my son at, you know, four years old when, uh, you know, when or eight years old when Barack Obama took the presidency. But now that he's voting age, he feels like, where's my Barack Obama? It doesn't work that way. So yes, they are very engaged and they, they, they get out and they march and they are a big reason why we're seeing this momentum around this issue. So they are doing a lot of great work, um, but we have to help them understand that, you know, politics don't work quite the way that everything else does. And we have to balance that because they might tell you, well, it should, and they're, they're right, you know, it should, but we have to work to get it that to there. We have to stay with it. You know, you can't, you know, there have been some great, we, we lost um, John Lewis, a great uh, civil rights leader just a, a month or so ago. And, you know, and he was, he marched with Martin Luther King and was beaten and you know, served in Congress for many, many years and um, a great leader. Sure, he got tired and frustrated many, many times, but kept going. And so we have to, and he kept, he said that keep going. And, um, and, and our, our young people need to know that, that they have to stay with it even though it won't be perfect. I promised I wouldn't take up more than an hour of your time. I've taken up a lot more than that. And um, I could carry on chatting to you about all kinds of things. But I, I know you've got a busy day, no doubt, ahead of you. Um, are you eight hours behind us? I think you are, aren't you? Um, eight, yeah, eight hours. So you've yeah. probably had a lovely breakfast, maybe go for a wander on the beach. Um, have a, What's going on in, in the post-lockdown era for you? Yeah, uh, Zoom calls all day long. <laughs> <laughs> the Zoom fatigue is real. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but yeah, then I get out and get, go for a hike up in the 
in the mountains and yeah, get out on the beach. So um, I mean, it's it's been this has been tough this lockdown, but I, I've been really lucky. Yeah, you know. So you're in a good part of the world uh, in terms of an outdoor lifestyle, anyway. And I hope that um, you have a good rest of the summer. We want to see you back uh, in Europe soon. So you never know. Um, Things might change in November at that election. You might you might find yourself uh, free to visit. We're um we we love having you. We love having you on this shore, you know, for work. But obviously, I know Europe's missing you. The vineyards of Italy and France are missing you as well. So <laughs> I'm missing them as well. Thanks, Gabby. Appreciate it. Take care. Thank you so much for your time, Michael. What a man, the superb Michael Johnson. A huge thanks to him for joining us from California, sharing so much of his life and wisdom, from being the fastest man in the world to embracing a new, slightly more relaxed lifestyle. He's a master of achieving his goals, and we have missed him this summer. I'm off to look at Solgar's brain health section on their website to make sure I can keep my brain power tip-top and keep processing all of the topics we're covering on these podcasts. Thank you so much to Solgar and, of course, to producer Emma Corsham at Rethink Audio and to you for listening. I'll be back next week. See you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.